I've been here. Um, next 45 minutes, I'm going to uh, share with you guys a, a talk um, that I've given a couple times this year, and something that's really grown out of my own um, experience, kind of struggle with uh, trying to get dating right um, before I was married, and even trying to kind of sort out how I understood that um, before I was married. If we haven't done a talk on on uh, dating and relationships and that kind of stuff at YXL in a while. Um, and this isn't really a dating talk, per se, um, so sorry if that's a disappointment to any of you. But um, before I begin, let me, let me ask uh, God to uh, guide my words and be with us. So let, me, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we, we uh, come before you um, broken, confused, uh, often uh, hopeful, longing for your, uh, for your face, to see you, to know you. Uh, Lord, we want what you want for us. We want the very best, and we want um, to love each other, but we struggle, Lord. It's hard, and we pray that you would help us to, um, to understand your word and to understand ourselves and to understand each other and to be able to love each other and to, um, to, uh, to walk in holiness before you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, a good bit. So while you're finding that, I'll kind of give you a little intro. Um, it was actually a few years after I got married that um, I started to see how flawed my whole approach to dating had been. Um, and that uh, really several people uh, over the years kind of helped me to see some things and, and see how I had accepted a model for relationships um, that really came from the world, uh, not from God. And it's kind of the, the, the model that most of us sort of accept as normal. Um, but this talk is not going to be about how far is too far, and this talk is not going to be about uh, is courtship the right way to do it, or is dating, you know, can you do all those kinds of things. We're not getting into that. Um, th those things really aren't, um, aren't the point. The the, 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 the real important thing is, is our intentions towards, towards each other in our relationships and whether our freedom as Christians is creating a stumbling block um, for our brother or sister. Now, I'm not naive, certainly, and I know and, uh, full well that all, all of you as teenagers, you know, you're, you're, um, we all experience love, we experience strong uh, romantic feelings towards, towards others at times, and maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but certainly a lot of times those things happen long before you're really ready to think about getting married. And so a lot of what, we're, what I'm going to talk about is how can we um, honor each other? How can we walk in holiness in that time kind of between childhood and the time when you really are ready to get married? There's this whole period of your life. Um, it did, that period didn't used to be so long, really, in the last, uh, you know, I don't know how long it's been. People, people say different things about it, but in the last you know, 100, 200 years, that period has gotten longer and longer that, that goes from sort of childhood to marriage. So it's actually, you know, in some ways getting harder as a Christian to walk during that time. Um, so we're going we're to take a look at that from a biblical perspective, and we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 4. So Thessalonians is a letter from Paul to the church of Thessaloniki. And um, Paul has, Paul helped to start that church in Thessaloniki to... Um, um, major, uh, major city there in, in Greece, and he uh, had to leave in a hurry um, for the usual reasons, run out of town for, uh, you know, for stirring up trouble. 
Uh, and Paul had been trying to get back. He really wanted to see the, Thess the Thessalonians. And he writes to them. He talks about how badly he wanted to see them um, and how much he loves them. And so because he wasn't able to come, he sent Timothy. And Timothy goes, and Timothy comes back with a good report about what's going on in Thessaloniki. So Paul, uh, by the time we get to the end of chapter 3, if you want to kind of look there in uh, chapter 3, verse 6, it says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, um, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been, affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. So he's, he's really encouraged that, that this church that he helped to give birth to is, is growing. And he prays for them in verse 11. And um, just as an aside, I mean, I love Paul's prayers for the church. Every time you read through one of Paul's letters and you come across one of his prayers, just underline it or highlight it or bracket it, because those prayers are gold. And you can come back to them and pray them for yourself, pray them for your friends, um, pray them for your church. And he says, in verse 11, he prays this. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, um, he prays for them, and what is, it, what is it that he's praying for them? And I think it's really interesting to hear what is it that he's asking. Because we're going to look in, verse, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, where Paul deals with two topics, of, or really one topic, but they're connected, of sanctification and sexuality. Okay, But that's really an unfolding of what he prayed for them in those verses in 3, verses 11, 13. So he prayed that God would make them increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Making their love increase and abound is a means by which God is establishing their hearts blameless in holiness. Do you see that connection? May God make your love for each other increase and abound, okay, um, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. So that picture of us being um, blameless in holiness, what is that? What does that look like? Uh, and, and loving each other so that we become blameless in holiness. Uh, now, when we love each other, I don't know if you guys have ever uh, been in church and, and known real human beings, but when you do those things, it's messy, right? It does not always look pretty. Uh, we get on each other's nerves. We, we get angry. We fight. Within families, we can't even get along, Okay. So this, this, uh, this picture of loving each other, um, it means getting into each other's lives, bearing with each other, helping each other through tough times. It's messy, it's hard, but it's beautiful. And this love for one another, that's, he's talking about other Christians when he says one another, and then he says for all, that's for everyone, not just Christians, but also non-believers. This is the arena, right? This is the place in which our sanctification happens. You can't go off as a hermit and live in a cabin somewhere in the woods and get sanctified all by yourself. Okay, God has designed it so that your sanctification, that is you becoming blameless in holiness, happens in community. It happens as we love each other, in our families, in our schools, in our churches, as we love one another. Uh, but for what end is God making us blameless in holiness? Why? Why is he doing it? And I want you to see that. It's in verse um, 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, so that we can, 
stand before God. We will not be able to stand before God unless we are blameless in holiness. Okay? Now that might seem scary to you because we all know how blameful we are. Okay? But that is what God is doing. That is what God is, is doing in you to prepare you to be able to stand before the Father blameless. And that we can be made ready for our Lord, the head and husband of the church, when he comes again. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's big stuff. It's heady stuff that Paul's talking about. So now, he urges them in 4.1. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, because he's gotten this good report back from Timothy, that you do so more and more. So he's saying um, that you're already walking this way, already abounding in love for, for one another, but go further. Right? Reach for it. Go further. So sanctification, this picture he's talking about, this walk, isn't just something passive. Um, he, in verse 11 through 13, he prays that God would do it. Right? That God would make this happen in you. Now he's saying, reach for it. Go further. Okay? So God wants us to be engaged. Praying, learning, trusting, walking. Just the time that you're spending here at YXL this week is, is a step that you have taken to be engaged to give yourself to the word, to teaching, to prayer, to, to fellowship, so that God can change you. Um, in verse 3 then he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay? So he says, well, let me back up to get verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I'm going to stop halfway through verse 3. Now, he had just prayed that God would establish their hearts blameless, and that's sanctification. Now he's pointing out that it is, in fact, God's will for them, okay? So this is what God wants for you. This is what God is going to do. Um, it's not just something that Paul is asking for on their behalf. God has purposed that they be made blameless. Now, if you, look, if you want to flip a page over to chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, you'll see Paul pray again, and you'll see it spelled out even more clearly. He says this, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do you hear that phrase, sanctify you completely? And that, that's God doing the sanctifying, okay? That's God, not us, doing the sanctifying. And he sanctifies us in every aspect of our being, both physical and spiritual, all the way, completely. Completely means to the full, all right? Filled up so that you will walk. You will be blameless in holiness when you stand before our God and Father. And it depends not on our faithfulness. That's the crazy thing. Is it depends on God's faithfulness to us, not on our faithfulness. And yet, Paul um, calls us to, to reach for it. So Paul's prayer for them that God may establish their hearts blameless is not just a good wish for them. It's not just saying, well, I hope God will do this, right? It is God's will. He purposes to do it. He is faithful, and he will surely do it. If you belong to him, if you have placed your trust in Jesus as your Savior, he will finish the work that he has begun in you. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. All right. And we're still called to walk the walk. Okay? That's what Paul's talking. You've got to walk the walk. So let's go back to 4.3 and, and read the rest of that verse. He says, For this is the will of God... Your sanctification, colon, okay, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, hang on a minute. 
Why does Paul put our sexual behavior forward as the first big thing in our sanctification? Now, why is it so central? I, I would have thought it would have been something like idolatry or pride, right? I mean, pride was the big sin that, that uh, you know, that, that Satan was guilty of, and that, you know, it's the, sort of the central sin, um, Adam and Eve's fall and everything else. So why sexual immorality? Why is that so central? Well, I think a close reading of these next few verses, we're just going to follow with these next, um, these first eight verses of chapter four, and I think a close reading will show us that our sexuality is a much bigger deal than many of us realize, and that Paul is talking here about a lot more than just erotic love, okay, it's more than just the physical act of sex. The word that he uses for sexual immorality in Greek is porneia, you've probably heard this before, but just to give you a definition, um, it means illicit sexual intercourse, um, adultery, fornication, that is, you know, sexual uh, relations outside of marriage, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, or metaphorically it can also mean the worship of idols. So it, in some sense, when we worship idols, we are, we are committing sexual immorality against God. Um, okay, so we're supposed to avoid that. We got that. Check. Got it. We know we, we need to stay away from that. But what is given then as the opposite of sexual immorality in verse 4? Take a look at that. Um, somebody wanted this, you know, just direct observation from the passage. Anyone want to answer? What's given as the opposite of um, sexual immorality as he moves into verse 4? Okay, so, so being able to control your body, control your own vessel. Alright? So that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Um, another translation of that same passage is that you know how to possess your own vessel. Okay? Now there are four, there are four words I want to kind of explore there, just give you a quick definition of. The, first of all, the word know is the Greek word eido, which means to see or perceive with the senses, to know or understand, to have regard for something or pay attention to. So it involves kind of a... a a knowledge that, that is um, like real, sort of, you know, things you can touch kind of knowledge. Uh, the second word, control or possess, um, I don't know how to pronounce this word, kataomai, but it means to acquire, to get, or procure a thing for oneself, to possess. So it implies having kind of ownership of, having possession of. Um, holiness means, again, consecration, so being purified, set apart, consecrated. And then the last word, honor, is one that we gloss over a lot of times and don't talk a lot about. A lot of what I'm going to share with you um, this afternoon is really this idea of honor. The word there is time, and it means evaluating by which the price is fixed. So it's like if you uh, if judge something and you evaluate what is the proper price for this thing. If you've seen those shows on television where people bring in old stuff and uh, they found in the attic and they have to find out if it's trash or treasure, you know. And they, they've discovered that they've got this priceless work of art that they was, uh, you know, their aunt Edna had left to them, and, and they didn't realize it. But that that valuing that one of those experts will do is is, the, is setting the proper honor onto that um, that that artifact. Um, so Paul is talking about having some practical knowledge, right? Practical knowledge based on things you can see or perceive with your senses about how you're supposed to control or possess your own bodies. Um, we'll come back to this idea of knowledge, but first we're going to take a look at the manner in which we're to control our bodies. So the way he says we're supposed to control our bodies in holiness and honor. 
Okay, let's let's unpack that a little bit. First part of that uh, question that kind of goes along that is where does our honor or value come from? You individually, when you think about yourself for a moment, you think about where does your what is your value? What are you worth? Okay. As a Christian. I often think of my only merit or value coming from the fact that I'm united to Christ. Okay? I think, okay, I have nothing in myself that would make me worthy of God saving me or anything like that. And it's only because of Jesus that I'm worth something. Um, but if my value comes from my being in Christ, am I more valuable than people who don't believe? That's kind of a tricky question. I don't think that doesn't sound right, that I would be inherently more valuable than an unbeliever. Um, so, do I have greater honor as a Christian because I'm a Christian? Um, I don't think this is true, and we'll see from later verses that it can't be true, or Paul's argument really falls apart. There has to be another basis for our honor or value as men and women, uh, and it has to be a basis that applies to believers and non-believers alike. Okay, you guys tracking with me so far? So we're trying to get what is the heart of that, that value. As believers, yes, we are united by faith to God who is infinitely valuable, but we're not inherently more valuable than non-believers. Rather, our value comes from the fact that we are made in the image, in the image of God. That's right. We are his image bearers. And you find this idea all over the Bible. You find it in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis. Uh, in Genesis 9, 6, it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So murder is wrong no matter who you kill, right? Um, whether they're a believer or non-believer. Because every person has that inherent value as an image bearer of God. We see it again in James 3, 9 where he talks about how no one can tame the tongue. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So cursing, when we curse someone, it's wrong because, not because of the words that we say, but because we are cursing a person who is made in God's image. So why is it important for my sexual purity that I have a clear sense of my own honor as a person made in God's image? Okay, that's a good question. I'll say it again. Why is it important for my sexual purity that I have a clear sense of my own honor as a person, as an image bearer of, of God? We find a clue to it in the next phrase in verse 5. So look at verse 5 of chapter 4. It says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay? So, this picture of passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God seems to make a connection between the passion of lust and this not knowing God. Okay? So, there's some connection between the knowledge of God and the, the passionate, lustful, and sort of uncontrolled behavior. So if I don't know how to control my own body and if I live in the passion of lust, it has something to do with me not knowing God. Let's think about why that is the case. And to do so, we'll flip back to Romans 1. A lot of you may be familiar with this passage. We're going to look at it again. So if you'll flip over with me to Romans 1. Starting at verse 18. Can I get somebody to read verses 18 through 25 for me? Go ahead.
Okay, the word um, degrading, uh, is, is that the NIV translation? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the, if in the ESV, the, the word degrading is the same word that we're seeing there in Thessalonians, that word time or honor, okay? So it's the dishonoring or the degrading, the dishonoring of their bodies. So look, look at the use of the word know and the word, use of the word honor in that passage. You, you see it, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them up to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So it, it seems, if you can follow Paul's progression, right, he has this kind of cascade of them falling further and further down here. Um, in verse 21, that when people stop honoring or thanking God, they eventually lose their knowledge of him. So first they stop honoring and thanking God, and their, their knowledge becomes dark, their, their thinking becomes darkened. Right? Then they become like this Gentile, the Gentiles that he just talks about who do not know God. Um, and Jesus challenged the Jews on this in, in John 8, 19. He said, you, you neither know, know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. Right? So what happens to our view of man, our value of man, when we no longer honor God? That's the next question, okay? If we've lost our knowledge of God, we've stopped honoring Him, what happens to our view of man? Let's look at that. So we see from this passage that our basis of, uh, for honoring one another rightly as image bearers is grounded in our honoring of God. Without one, we lose the other. And we look for another value system to determine our own and others' honor. So if we don't have the basis, the value system of Okay, you are a person made in God's image, and that is why you are, um, are valuable, or honor, worthy of honor. What else do we have to value people on? What, what other things do we start to value people based on? Garrett? Physical appearance. Okay, so if someone is attractive, handsome, beautiful, uh, strong, some outward physical appearance, what else? Money. Money is a big, a big factor, how successful you are, how much money you have, wealth. What else? Okay, athletic prowess, your abilities on the, on the field, any of those things? Social status. Their house. Okay. Their house, yeah. Right. So those are sort of all sort of things that they're, they're merit. Um, they can also be an aspect of, you know, what can you do for me, right? We value people based on what can this person do for me, right? Um, and so we, we begin to, to change this value system to one that's based on physical appearance, merit, wealth. What can you do to benefit me? The selfish, lustful desires of our hearts take over at this point, guys. And we dishonor each other as we take advantage of one another to gratify our desires. This is not just about sex. This is about all aspects of how we think about and treat each other. Okay? We give up honoring God. We lose the knowledge of Him. Our value system for one another changes as well. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. So let's look at another passage that helps us understand the vital connection between our sexuality and our relationship with Christ. 
Um, the knowledge that Paul refers to in Romans is not just a head knowledge of God, right? It's an intimate, personal knowing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 6, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this. It's pretty familiar with you. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. Hear that picture? The honor? Think about Now, what does that tell us about our honor? So glorify God in your body. So again, think about this. Why is our sexuality so important to our sanctification? That's been the central question. Paul is connecting our sanctification, walking blameless, to our sexuality. And we see that we're united with Christ in our bodies. And when we sin sexually, we make the members of Christ members of a prostitute, as he says. We, make, we, 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 um, we bring Christ into, into um, our sin. This refutes the idea of Gnosticism, or sort of this notion that, hey, it's just, it, you can have the spiritual life that's really disconnected from the physical world and physical life. Um, but our sexuality is also a picture of our union with Christ. The intimacy and love that's between Christ and his bride, the church. So, back to 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to um, continue on in verse 6. If you've flipped over to Romans, come with me back to 1 Thessalonians. So we read verse 5, and we saw that we're contrasted. Um, our behavior is to be contrasted with... Uh, the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that do not know God gave us a clue that our relationship, that our knowledge of God and our valuing, our understanding, our, not, our honoring God is connected to the way that we honor one another. If we lose one, we lose the other, and we begin to dishonor each other in, uh, that, in passion of lust. Um, so in verse 6, he says, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. So let's look at that phrase, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Two words there I want to look at. Transgress and wrong or defraud. You may have it translated as defraud. It's like cheating, okay? So transgress means to step over, beyond, uh, to transgress, to overstep the proper limits, to trespass uh, as one who defrauds another in business. So it's like cheating somebody in business. And then the word wrong, defraud, means to, to have more, a greater part or share, to gain the advantage of another, to overreach. Okay? So this means that when we get involved in sexual immorality, we're, we're really transgressing and wronging our brother or sister. That's what Paul's saying. Okay? It's a version of transgressing and defrauding or cheating. So how is that? I, when I read things like this, I go, okay, well, what, what do you mean, Paul? Well, how is it exactly that I'm cheating my brother or sister in this way? Um, 
what does it mean to transgress or defraud someone in general? Of course, it means to treat somebody unjustly or unfairly, to take advantage of them in some way. And in this context, it really implies uh, taking something without paying the proper price for it. Because we've been talking about setting this proper honor on someone or on something. And this, here we have this picture of taking something without paying the price for it. Um, without, without honoring or setting the proper value upon that thing, or a person in this case. So Paul's talking about taking a person without paying the proper price. Okay, he's talking about taking a person, not paying the price. What is the price of a person? What do you think? What's the price of a person? What are you worth? Say, the blood of Christ. Yes. But here we're talking about not just believers, but unbelievers. So we're talking about people who are covered by the blood of Christ and people who are in art. So what is, what is a person, what, what, by what thing could you measure the price of a, of a person? Priceless. Priceless. Yeah, there's no, there's no dollar figure you could put on it. In fact, what I would say to you is the only thing that you can value a person by is the value of another person. Right? A person is worth a person. So that, Another person, one person made in God's image is worth another person made in God's image. Two people give themselves to each other and each becomes the possessor of the other in love until they're parted by death. Scripture tells us that in some amazing way the two actually become one, not just spiritually and emotionally, but also physically. We have a word for it. It's called marriage. Okay? And it's fair. It's awesome. It's fair. No one's cheated or defrauded of their proper word. Now, the popular view, and I know you guys hear it, I hear it all the time, the popular view today is that two people can enter into a consensual sexual relationship, and it's an even exchange, right? Um, each is giving affection and pleasure to the other. It's a fair trade. You know, we, we entered into it willingly, so it's fair. But if we listen to what Paul is saying here, what we, what we see in God's word, um, and if I ask someone to give themselves to me sexually, Without promising my life in return, I'm effectively saying to that person, here I want you to think about this, I'm effectively saying to that person, you have less honor than me. You're not worthy of my life in return. Okay? You're not worth it. Now you may not think that's what you're saying, I may not think that's what I'm saying, we may not intend to say that, but that God is the one who has set the price on you, right? It's God's economy, not yours. And when we do this, this is effectively what we are communicating to each other. It is not an even exchange between two lovers. It's two thieves stealing from each other. Each is dishonored. Okay? Each feels. Each feels it. Each bears the effect of dishonoring and being dishonored. And if you live long enough and you have enough friends and you see and you experience, either have experienced this yourself or you've seen enough of your friends go through this, you know this is true. You've seen it. I've seen it again and again. I've known it myself. I've seen it in so many of my friends, this, the effect of this, this dishonoring of each other when we basically are saying, you're not worth it, and I'm going to take, and I'm not going to give my life in return. So that brings us to the question of our relationships before marriage and the importance of our attitude and intention in those relationships, okay? Um, it used to be that when a, um, a young man wanted to take a girl out on a date, he would have to go talk to her father first, you know, and, he'd, and the father would sit him down and he would ask this question. Does anybody know what the question is the father would ask? What do you do to make money? 
What are you going to do to make a living? Okay, that not that one. That's a good one, but that's not it. Why do you like my daughter? What are your intentions toward what yeah, why do you like my daughter? What are your intentions towards my daughter? Okay. Um, you know, it's a great question. And really both the, the young man and young woman should have to answer it. What are your intentions in a relationship? So what are some of the reasons why people date? Real quick, pop quiz, there's no wrong answers. What are some reasons why people date? To experience different personalities, different personalities. so you kind of learn who might be compatible with you and kind of who you might get along with well. That's a good one. All right, what else? Enjoy each other's company. That's a very good reason, yeah. Other gender best friend, right? Because everybody else is. Everybody else is. You don't want to, some, some people will make fun of you. A lot of times people, you know, people get picked on because they don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, somebody makes you feel special. That's real, that's, those are important things, right? All right. They affirm you, okay? Make you feel better about yourself. How many people do you know that would give this answer, though? Uh, because I really like him or her, and I want to see if this person, this is the person I'd like to marry someday. Some, some of you, some of you would, okay? I mean, I'm not saying it, right? But I'm, I would venture a lot of your friends and, and maybe some of you would go, yeah, maybe I'd think about that. I haven't really thought about that before. Um, I know that for myself, most of the girls I dated um, before, the girl right before I dated Tish, um, I, would, I, I wasn't even thinking about. I wasn't even considering uh, marriage uh, seriously at all. I wasn't ready to think about that. Um, so the challenge, and this is the, this is the hard part, because I don't have a good answer for this. I don't have some, some recipe to give you. But the fact is that if you're not ready to consider somebody as even a possible husband or wife, and you're years away from even thinking about marriage, or the person that you want to go out with is someone you would never think about marrying, they're not a Christian, or you're just not somebody you're like, yeah, no, they're fun, they make me feel good about myself, but no way, I would never marry them. How is it honoring them to pursue a romantic relationship with them? That's really the question. Does it honor them to do that? The only true intention you can have at that point, even if it's just, you know, it's fun, you enjoy being with them and everything else, but your intentions are really not anything to do with, with um, your, your long-term future together. The only real intention you can have at that point is to have fun and satisfy your own desires, right? No matter how much you feel like you love the other person. I'm not saying that your love isn't real, but you set yourselves up in that situation for dishonoring, for transgressing, and defrauding each other. Physically and emotionally. The Bible really has no category for two people in a romantic relationship where marriage is not the end game. Okay? It doesn't mean that you've got to get married right away or that you've got to be planning to get married in the next six months. But if two people in a romantic relationship have no intention for marriage, the Bible has no notion of what that, what that is. Right? You can call it dating or courtship or whatever you like. What matters, though, is the intention of your heart. So my call to you, I'm not here to kind of tell you, here's how you do it and, and whatever else. But here's what I want to challenge each of you with. As you think about um, your relationships, just your friendships and your relationships here, is to take each other seriously. Okay? Take one another seriously. Don't treat anybody, a friend, boyfriend, or girlfriend, as a throwaway person. Okay? I treated a lot of people. I have treated a lot of people over the years as throwaway people. Paul says we regard no one from a secular point of view, but we look at everybody as being made in God's image, as being worthy of honor. We're God's image bearers, and we are called to love and honor one another, and that means everybody, not just the person that you're someday going to marry. 
So what if you're in a relationship and you're not sure what the other person's real intentions are? Okay. It might seem scary, um, but ask. Ask the question. Okay. Um, if you're not sure how, you can try something like, you know, why do you want to go out with me? See what they, how they answer that question. Um, the guys are notorious for dodging this question. That's, that question starts to get right, way too close to, you know, how do you feel about our relationship and where do you see our relationship going? And guys get real nervous when they get asked that question. But uh, I think that we, we ought to be able to answer that question. Um, and sometimes we haven't really thought about it honestly until we have to answer it. I think it's important for parents to ask this question too. Um, and if you're in a relationship where you do have good and godly intentions, Realize that the call to honor one another is still just as important at this, at this point. Just because you might get married doesn't mean that sexual intimacy is any less a defrauding or dishonoring of one another. You haven't made the promise yet. All right? You haven't jumped the uh, broom. What is it? The altar. Anyway, you haven't, you haven't done it. You haven't, haven't given your life uh, to that person yet. So show her that you love her above yourself. Show him that you cherish and respect him and would never consider him unworthy of your life in return. You know, m most I I I, uh, I have a company. I have a lot of people that several people that work for me, uh, and a lot of people that I know. Just lots of friends. And more and more, even I'm seeing some young people who've graduated, who've, who've left our youth group and gone on, and are now um, living with uh, with their girlfriend or boyfriend. And they're talking about getting married at some point. But that has become more and more the accepted norm that you're going to live with someone for a while to kind of see if things are going to work out before you get married. And I don't want to go into a whole long thing about that other than to say that it's just broken, guys. It's wrong, okay? Now, I'm not saying that there's not mercy uh, for people that, that end up making that choice, but um, God, is, God is the avenger in this. This is what Paul is saying. He's like, when you disregard this teaching, you're not disregarding me. You're disregarding God. He is the one who has set this price. He's the one who's given you honor. And he is, the, he is the avenger in these things. Right? That's kind of scary when you hear that. You go, oh. Now, there's none of us in this room who can stand up and say we have walked blamelessly in our relationships, whether it's in the tent of our hearts and our thoughts towards others uh, or anything, right? I'm standing up here in front of you as the chief of sinners. Okay? But I am covered. Praise God in the blood of my Savior. Okay? There is forgiveness. There is healing. There is power. There is power to transform your life and to really rewire your head so you think differently about people. As you look to Jesus, as you dig into his word, as you put your arms around one another and love each other, we are changed, and that's what this week is about, is about letting God change us and putting ourselves in a place where God can affect that change. But we need, um, we need a powerful Savior who's willing to basically take the bullet for us. When it says God is the avenger and all these things, that vengeance was taken out on Jesus on the cross. But that doesn't mean that you won't bear the consequences of sexual sin in this life, Right? We see lots of examples of that in Scripture, and I can tell you plenty of examples of it from my own life and others. Okay? David, King David, bore the consequences of his sexual sin for the rest of his life. doesn't mean God stopped loving him. God did not forsake him. God brought healing. God brought good from it. He brought our Savior 
from David's sin. And he's able to take our sin and bring Jesus <laughs> through from it, okay? So I don't want you to lose hope, but I do want you to take this seriously. God makes this direct connection between our sanctification and our sexual behavior, our sexual uh, relationships, okay? Our relationships with each other. Honor each other. Take each other seriously. Take this week as an opportunity to look at each other differently and think about each other differently. And when you go home, carry that with you. Think about each other differently. Take each other seriously. Everyone you meet is a person made in God's image. There are no throwaway people. God is the avenger. He is jealous for you. He is the one who has set the value on you. He loves you and he wants you for himself. So thank you for listening to all of that. And uh, I have all of this written out. If anyone would like a copy of it, I'll be glad to uh, distribute to you. So thank you. And um, let me pray for us. Father God, uh, we need you, Lord. We're, we, are, we are broken. And yet we, we so long to be clothed in your righteousness. Take away our stained clothes and our garments that are covered in excrement. Clothe us in your righteousness. Lord, help us to see you, to honor you, and to know you. I pray that you would be real to us this week in a way that we would, we would know that you have placed your holiness upon us. You've given us your image made us in your image and that we would see each other differently this week and that we would be able and empowered to love each other in ways that we've never been able to before because of the work of your spirit in us. Change us. Give us new eyes, new hearts. Unite us to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.